to the AIAC podcast. You are listening to our weekly talk and interview show about politics and culture on the African continent, as well as about world events from an African perspective. Brought to you by Africa is a country. Do follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. But most importantly, head over to africasacountry.com to check out new writing. And if you like the podcast, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a review. Tell us if we're good, if we're bad, if we're in the middle and have work to do. We appreciate any and all feedback. This week, we are talking about what is happening in Peru. You might see in headlines on your newsfeed or on the telly that protests are happening in Peru. These protests are against the impeachment of ex-president Pedro Castillo, who was forced out of office on the 7th of December. This is after he was elected in July of 2021 in a watershed election. Castillo represented the highest hopes for the marginalized and downtrodden of Peru. He was an unknown elementary school teacher and he ascended to Peru's highest office in a vastly unequal country. Now, his radical agenda upset many of Peru's establishment and there were multiple efforts to try and get him out. The impeachment that happened on the 7th of December was a third attempt and third time makes for the lucky time. Since then, there's been indignation and nationwide protests have taken place, largely concentrated in Peru's south. And the demands of the protesters are many, but the main one is for the immediate removal of Dina Boluarte, who's Castillo's successor, who was his vice president, who is now the acting president of Peru, and for elections to be held as soon as possible. Some other demands include demands for a new constitution and, in some cases, for the secession of the southern part of Peru, where most of its rural peasant population is concentrated, the most disenfranchised demographic in the country. So to discuss exactly what is going on, it's a very complicated situation, we are going to be chatting to Nicholas Allen, who is the managing editor of Jacobin Latin America, as well as a commissioning editor at Jacobin, as well as Jose Miguel Munive Vargas, who is a Peruvian PhD student at Stony Brook University, specializing in Latin American history and politics with a focus on the Andes. So listen to the interview. Here it is. Joining us on the program are Nicholas Allen and Jose Miguel Munive Vargas. Uh, Nicholas is a graduate student in Latin American history and is a commissioning editor of Jacobin Magazine Latin America. And Jose Miguel is a PhD student at Stony Brook University with interests in Andean history, particularly Peru, race, gender, nationalism, education, health and state formation, as well as grassroots intellectuals and popular conservatism in Latin America and the US. Gentlemen, thank you so much for coming onto the program. Thank you. Nice to be here. So where to begin? Um, I think for a lot of leftists around the world, and leftists is, I think, a contestable term, but for people who broadly believe in the creation of a democratic and egalitarian society, when Pedro Castillo was elected in July of 2021, that was a watershed moment. And 
arguably perhaps the most watershed moment of what is being called the resurgent pink tide. And I know that itself is also something that we should unpack and ask to what extent are we really in a pink tide resurgence, but be that as it may, when he became president of Peru, this person who was virtually unknown, at least to the political establishment, who was formerly an elementary school teacher, this seemed to embody the highest aspirations of what a government for the people could look like and someone who directly hailed from the people. So the events that have unfolded since the 7th of December have been really disheartening. Um, and to be honest myself, I've kind of avoided paying close attention because it's, it's demoralizing. So I kind of want to begin by starting with that, which is what happened on the 7th of December when Pedro Castillo was impeached and subsequently arrested and this mass wave of nationwide protests was triggered. Could you walk us through that? Why was he impeached? Who impeached him? And where is he now? Do you want me to take it or would you like Jose Miguel to take that? Either one of you, go ahead. I'll, I'll start it off and Jose Miguel can, you know, fill in the blanks. Um, the, the, the December 7th uh, impeachment was in fact, uh, I think, the fourth attempt by the by the Peruvian uh, yeah. parliament to impeach Pedro Castillo. Um, they, they'd done it for several different reasons and in several different um, occasions over the over his sixteen month uh, term, sixteen or seven months. Um, the, the most recent one, the, most, the successful one, was actually triggered by by Pedro Castillo's attempt to uh, dissolve. Congress. Why? Because he was going to be impeached by that very Congress. So there was a kind of a back and forth uh, kind of attempt to preempt uh, his impeachment. Um, that happened, I think, uh, the, the, the day before, on December 6th, uh, Castillo announced that he was going to try to dissolve Congress um, to, uh, to prevent the, the, the impeachment vote that was set to go forth the following day. Having done so, he effectively gifted uh, the Peruvian Congress uh, the, the, the constitutional pretext that they needed to gather the majority vote that they previously did not have um, to vote by majority to, to, to impeach him. Um, the, um, now, why, the, the big question is kind of why would he commit such a blunder um, you know, why, why couldn't he have foreseen that this would be the outcome? Or did he foresee that this would be the outcome? Um, I don't know if, if, if Jose Miguel has some other details that he wants to fill in or... I'm sure I well, forgot. yes, I think that, uh, well, that's uh, absolutely true. And uh, the issue here is that, as you say, that's a question that historians will have to work on over decades, for sure. Because so far, even President Castillo haven't said anything about uh, what was his rationale for uh, declaring uh, the dissolution of Congress. In that way, um, without having the support of any of the um, army bodies on the, of the country or any of the other powers, and even uh, support from the population uh, in the same very day, <laughs> in that very day. 
And on the other side, I think we, we can delve deeper in what was going on with Congress over the past. Um, Castillo government lasted one year, four months, and nine days. And oh, during that time, uh, he had to change almost 80 ministers. He had six cabinets wow. in one year, six cabinets. And all the ministers, of course, they had many accusations for uh, corruptions. They, uh, corruption, they have a very dark precedence. That's definitive. And Congress, uh, they were under constant uh, scrutiny from Congress, like no other cabinet in the last 30 years. Uh, and even now, we have the current cabinet and the ministers, they have uh, precedents uh, uh, with cases of corruption, and Congress haven't, hasn't said anything, nothing. There is no accusation, no interrogation about their, uh, those cases, and after having, after 47 deaths, 47 killings during this protest. Uh, there has been no accusation from Congress, no attempt to impeach or, uh, I think in English, I don't know if you use the same word, uh, censurar, censor, uh, any of these ministers. And they have been uh, confirmed by Congress just two days ago with overwhelming support from the right wing. Indeed, the party has uh, that lost the election. Uh, uh, El Partido Fujimorista, Fujimori's party, they gave overwhelming support to this new cabinet. Uh, so now they are not the opposition. Now they are, they are official, the official party in power, along with all this uh, wide coalition of right-wing forces in Congress. And this is something that follows a historical pattern in Peru since the last, um, I would say even since the, since the early 1990s, hmm. because the population vote for uh, a leftist program, or at least a program that, a program that promise, a platform that promise social change, a structural change. And at the end, uh, the, platform, the platform that govern is the one that lost the election. And we have seen that in 2006, no, 2006 not, but in 2011 and also in 2016. So I'm just the extent to which Castillo faced opposition and hostility from Congress sounds astounding. But I wanna ask about Peru's current president, its acting president, Dina Boluarte, who was his vice president and ran on the same political party platform, um, Free Peru, um, who was also recently expelled from that party. And she has since in interviews then distanced herself from the ideology of the party, which is officially Marxist. So could you maybe explain why Boluarte has now effectively thrown Castillo under the bus. What someone would have expected is that faced with mounting uh, attempts by his own Congress to depose him, that there would be some support from his, his political party, but that doesn't seem to have been the case. Um, why was that so? 
I can, I can, again, I can start by giving a brief thumbnail sketch answer, and then I'll let Jose Miguel give like the more like robust answer. I mean, the, the, the thing that's kind of hard for people outside Peru to wrap their heads around is just, just how weak the party system is in Peru and how much these people that we associate with these parties are not in fact associated with these parties. I mean, they're the, um, I think they're called invitados. They're people who are effectively invited to, to, to saddle up to a party because they might have uh, some popularity in a certain electorate that this, the said party wants to win. This is actually the case of no none other than uh, Pedro Castillo. He's not, you know, as we would say on the left, he's not an organic member of, of this Marxist Leninist party, uh, Peru Libre. Uh, he was invited um, to run on their platform in the 2021 election. Um, because he had a, you know, he had a base, he had a, he had a um, and, uh, and I think that the same can be said of, of the former vice and now president, acting president, Dina Boluarte. Um, I, she doesn't even have very much of a political background at all, if I'm not mistaken, Jose Miguel. Um, she, she, I think she's a lawyer and, um, and uh, uh, the, I think the, the, the consensus now is that she's really acting at the behest of this, Congress, which, as Jose Miguel said before, is really kind of it's the case of the the the, the tail wa wagging the dog. It's really the Congress who's who's taken over the, the executive and put their pawn in. I don't know. I don't know what kind of arrangements they have. I don't know if that information is available. But the consensus seems to be that it's really Congress running the show, and then Dina Boluarte is, is a is a figurehead for them. Um, so why did she throw him under the? I mean, she, I, I don't think they ever really had any meeting of minds to begin with. Um, and I think, you know, this is, and again, it goes back to what Jose, Jose Miguel was saying before. There's, it's, it's always been a kind of um, odd, um, odd bedfellows, you know, with, with um, Castillo. He's, he's had to take, you know, <laughs> across his 80 different uh, appointments, he's had to kind of um, take appointments from, uh, initially from the left, from the, the, what seemed to be United Front Left, and then from different parties, um, just to save his hide. Um, and you know, I think Dino Boluarte is, is just one of those many figures that he initially, ex you know, accepted for his own political survival. And, and well, look where it got him. I don't know, hey, Jose Miguel. Is that is that fair? A fair characterization of her? Oh, definitely. Yes. Yes. We can add there that, uh, in fact, uh, a few days before uh, December the seventh. Uh, Dina Boluarte was cleaned of all the accusations she had from Congress about with charges of corruption. Mm -hmm. They were investigating her for uh, allegedly she had benefit a um, regional association from the region she is from, uh, Apurímac, and just a few days before uh, Congress decided to um, archivar to. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, that case. And then after Castillo, uh, after, after, after the fall of Castillo, uh, all of a sudden she uh, happily uh, accepted um, the presidency and started this government in alliance with Congress. Indeed, something that was very shocking for everybody is that in the middle of all this political turmoil, instead of... Um, trying to open channels of communication with regional leaders, with social movements and organizations, grassroots organizations all over the country. The only thing she did 
was to have meetings with members of the Congress, with leaders of the right-wing parties, and with the military. And she published the pictures on the social, social media and the official pages of the government institutions. She didn't try to start a, a conversation with all those, um, uh, with all the people that voted for Castillo and for her from that for that platform in 2021, and that's quite telling. I think so. I think that's very telling. Another thing that is important to underscore here is that um, while Castillo, yes, he started uh, appointing ministers and uh, trying to uh, solidify alliances with leftist parties, we have to notice here that uh, there is a wide spectrum within the left as, everybody in the, as everywhere in the world. Uh, we have this uh, self-proclaimed Marxist party, Peru Libre, where he was uh, invited. Um, but we have also these other leftist parties, mostly based on Lima. Uh, his members are part of the upper middle class or middle class. They, are, they would be identified in other countries as progressives. And they have a very different agenda. While Peru Libre and Castillo himself, they are socially conservative about women's rights, about LGBTQ uh, rights, and even they don't talk about indigenous rights unless they are uh, in campaign. Castillo himself, he has never claimed indigeneity or indigenous roots. He doesn't use that language. He says that he is a son of peasant people, campesinos, and he has, of course, a very, uh, he's a symbol because of his identity. He is a rural teacher. He is a union leader. Um, he's also a campesino. So, and he had no connections with the elite. It, he is the first president in Peruvian history that had no connections neither with the military nor the business elite in this country. And that's a huge difference. Despite he didn't have, have a history of militancy in the left, he didn't have that trajectory. And he wasn't either uh, a leader of a social movement. And that may explain also in part uh, the weakness of his position when he started his government. And so these alliances were very troubling at the beginning because we can see we can see something that uh, happened just this year. The leader of Peru Libre, the Marxist left wing, uh, they are supporters of Maduro uh, and Cuba. Uh, but they say in Congress, the leader uh, Vladimir Sorron Palomino, he said, "We have more points of agreement with the right wing, with Fujimoristas, than with the centrist leftist." Uh, we have nothing to talk with them. They are traitors uh, because they are caviar, uh, middle class, and they don't identify with a popular agenda. So we have more in common with the far right. So <laughs> uh, that's very troubling. So and that uh, shows a very complicated scenario here. 
Mm. I mean, sure, yeah, complicated indeed. Um, and I think despite, however, the tremendously weak position that Castillo entered the presidency in, somehow we're seeing this explosion of protests in opposition to recent events. So you mentioned earlier, Jose Miguel, that uh, Boluarte hasn't made any effort to reach out to ordinary Peruvians to get their say on what should happen next. And in fact, had began by saying that she was going to see out the remainder of her term up until the next cycle of elections in April 2026, has now conceded that elections will happen earlier in 2024, um, but this is seen by the populace as, as insufficient. And there are numerous demands being made for next steps. But let's talk about that. Uh, exactly who is protesting Jose Miguel, you began to paint a picture of the different political constituencies uh, that are in Peru. Um, and on top of who's protesting, what exactly are their demands? What is the trajectory of this, of this protest? Could it erupt into a nationwide movement or might it collapse under the burden of the repression that is currently happening, as you said, Jose Miguel, more than 47 fatalities so far? Well, um, if we try to answer who are protesting now, we can say that they are mostly people in the regions of um, the highlands. Uh, uh, regions like Cusco, Puno, Ayacucho, Huancavelica, Junín, Arequipa, the Southern Andes. Uh, also in some regions like to the coastal, to the coast, uh, Pacific coast, like um, La Libertad, Ica, in some other places of the country, they are, there are also protests, but they haven't had the same impact and the same uh, capacity to gather so many people like in the, the southern part of the country. And that's because, and people in Lima, I have to say this strongly, once again, we are seeing that this city, Lima, is absolutely and hideously ignorant about, uh, about how, well or how well politically organized are people in the Andes. They are absolutely ignorant about that. You can listen to the politicians, the journalists, and uh, so many other uh, pundits uh, stating that those who promote these protests are mostly uh, drug dealers. Are um, First, they accused the superfectos, then remnants of the Shining Path and the Maoist guerrilla of the 19, uh, 1980s. Then they accused Evo Morales and Bolivian agents. And now they are accusing Castillo, who is in prison and who has no lawyer. He has lost eight lawyers. So that guy is organizing these wide and massive protests. Uh, so they are changing the version over and over again. And we, what we are seeing here is communities. They gather together, they have meetings, they vote, and they have done that for decades. Uh, for example, in Cusco, Apurímac, and Puno, especially in Puno, 
we have these uh, uh, campesino organizations called the Rondas Campesinas, and they have uh, annual meetings in an organization called the Macro Regional, Junta Macro Regional uh, de Rondas Campesinas. And they have a long history, and they are very, very independent from any leftist party in Lima. Indeed, they are very critical of them. Uh, and they are organizing people. People uh, uh, collaborate, they put their money in, they uh, hire trucks, and they travel from all the different provinces to protests in the cities. And at the beginning, um, they were calling for the liberation of Castillo. Some of them were calling uh, for the liberation of Castillo, but as the protest grew bigger, uh, the call instead was for um, the dissolution of Congress. Uh, there, um, they asked uh, Dina Boluarte to renounce, and they are calling for new elections, and in other cases, for a new constitution. Uh, some of the most, um, uh, let's say, um, centrist uh, uh, asks from the people, uh, uh, they, they, they want at least a referendum, a referendum to decide if Peruvian people want a new constitution. At least that. But in Congress, they don't want even to talk about that possibility not a possibility of a national assembly or a new constitution. They don't want to talk a referendum. Uh, uh, so that's the situation now. So we can see here that, that, that there are many, many different uh, requests and many different um, uh, interests here. But now I would say that people want overall to get rid of this Congress and they want new elections soon. And that's urgent because with a proposal of Boluarte, she proposed to have new elections after, of course, after popular pressure, she proposed to have new elections in 2024. So within two years, no, within one year, more or less, uh, one year and a half. And during this time, Congress says that they are going to start, they are going to make changes. They are going to uh, make reforms what kind of reforms? They want re-election for, re for Congress members. They want to start um, two chambers. We have just one chamber. But those proposals were just rejected in, in vote in 2018. Uh, there was a national vote, a referendum. And Peruvian people voted against re-election and against having two chambers but they want to start uh, those reforms to, uh, to continue uh, in power. In power. Uh, so that's the reason why the population do not trust them. Mm -hmm. Could I jump in with just one quick yeah. thing? What, one kind of anecdotal observation. Um, you know, Jose Miguel spoke very, very well about the, the kind of the epicenter of the protests being in, in the Andean South of the highlands. Um, uh, and of course, the, the thing that the media, especially the, the, the Anglo 
media has not picked up on is that there are very few protests taking place in Lima. I think that was, you know, when Jose Miguel was kind of uh, had his thinly veiled uh, dig at, at Lima. And there's, there's really very little, maybe there's more now, but the last I saw is there's very little political activity uh, happening in Lima. And I think really what this goes to is, is a really deep seated issue um, that again, Jose Miguel can speak powerfully to, which is really about the central kind of antagonism or central contradiction you know, in, in Peru, which, which is a regional one, maybe even more than, you know, the political spectrum or maybe, I mean, it, maybe more than class, maybe more than race. I mean, it, it kind of, those are all subsumed in some ways under this uh, intense regional conflict. And the fact that, you know, like Jose Miguel was saying that uh, the left itself is, is not even able to really see how powerfully organized, um, you know, the, the, um, communities are in 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 the highlands uh is 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 pretty eloquent you know of, of this disconnect um mm. and i think one thing that jose miguel and i were, were, were kind of speaking about before is that this disconnect is now feeding not only into these demands that we're seeing for a new constitution one of the one of the key features of a new constitution would be a further uh decentralized state i imagine um but but uh, it's been also feeding into some growing demands for uh, se secession, for actually separating from, you know, for these southern areas, southern Andean regions actually separating from uh, the country that, that contains Lima. Um, I mean, that those are, you know, that, that's been latent throughout Peruvian history. And I mean, there's there's been political movements that have that have uh, had that banner in the past. But I think, you know. I think it's it's Jose Miguel who's there can confirm whether or not, but I think that's growing stronger now. Um, I don't, I don't, maybe maybe I'm speaking out of turn here, and that's not the case, but it seems to be. Could could we talk a bit about that? Like first, how how this disconnect emerged in the first place, to the extent that it's possible to answer this question, um, and how did it happen that the rural highlands of Peru ended up being so disenfranchised um, and so much political and economic power was concentrated in the metropole of, of Lima, especially considering the fact that, if I understand correctly, the mineral wealth of Peru is concentrated in, in the rural highlands. Um, so how did that regional power imbalance develop and become so stark throughout Peru's history? Let, let's unpack this um, uh, slowly, going Please. back in time. And uh, I am going to cite here a word that is not mine. Is um, a professor in a Peruvian professor. She is Cecilia Mendez, and uh, she has a work. Uh, she works on the 19th century, and what she argues and what she has shown in her work is that uh, while um, social scientists used to attribute the origin of, the, of this divide to a sort of colonial heritage, uh, that argument or that idea can be very misleading. And instead, we should look at the origins of this divide in the 19th century. Since uh, at the beginning of the Republic, um, the political power from the capital in the capital 
needed to be negotiated with local leaders in the southern region, in the highlands, with rural communities, with peasant leaders. Uh, they needed to have some concessions uh, from these leaders to be able to establish the government. And it was in the mid 19th century when Lima uh, started to uh, grow its power thanks to exportations of commodities like guano uh, that they gained economic power and they had very much more a prominence and weight than the southern part of the country. So there was a kind of shift on political power and also economic power. And it was also the moment, the mid 19th century and the late 19th century, when all these sort of racial theories were adopted by Peruvian elites. Racial theories that emphasized the backwardness of the Highland people, that emphasized the need to regenerate the Indian. And they created indeed a new category. Uh, they gave a new meaning to the word Indian. Uh, while during the colony, you could have Indians, okay, everywhere in the country. Uh, in the coastal region, in the cities, they could be lettered people, they could be well-educated people, traders, uh, and be part of many, many different, uh, um, perform many different, many different uh, jobs, uh, many different crafts. Since the late 19th century, the word Indian was mostly identified with the following features. Someone who lives in the highlands, someone who is inherently poor, a Quechua speaker, and um, an ignorant, and unclean, by the way. So those features were assigned and linked with the word in the Indian and also indigenous because they became synonyms. That's one of the reasons why when you go to the highlands, to many communities, you, have, you can find many different attitudes in relation to those words. Many people reject the term indigenous, for example. Uh, they embrace the term Aymara, I am Quechua, or I am simply from my town, from my region, but many of them don't want to be called indigenous at all because the meaning of that word for them is very insulting. It's a very colonial term. Other people instead claim to be indigenous because they are trying to uh, recover the meaning of that word, to change the meaning of that word. So we can have here a very diverse spectrum of point of views in the highlands. And uh, that's, one of the, uh, that's one of the factors that, that it's um, very gravitating here in this, in this divide that has uh, very, very long roots very old roots, I mean. And uh, what is going on now is that we can also see how while people uh, in these communities are protesting sustainably, in a very sustained sustain way, every day, um, and they are, uh, they are uh, carrying on strikes, in Lima, the response has been very, very shy. And I can say this because I have been in protests here in the city during the last 15 years, or even more, 2006. Yeah, uh, since 2006. 
And I remember every time we had collections, the movement Noah Keiko or the anti-Fujimorism, they called for uh, 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 manifestations, uh, marches, protests in the city. And these protests were massive, were wide. Um, we could see there are many leaders of the media, many of these uh, celebrity leftists that we have here in the capital, and people who belong to cultural, cultural movements. I don't think they are indifferent now, but they are not protesting like they did before. We don't see those uh, uh, massive manifestations that, like we have in, 2000, in 2006, in 2011, or what happened in, two, in 2020, in 2020, when we had an usurper uh, in that terrible week where two students, two students of a public university, by the way, uh, not, not a private university, they were students of San Marcos in Lima, they were killed by the police. Um, uh, the next day, uh, the president had to renounce because all the popular pressure but now we have 47 people assassinated and the government continues and Congress even uh, supported, uh, ratified this cabinet. And I just want to add here uh, a very critical player here, a very, very critical actor here, which is the media. Um, just to give an example, um, in the last election, when after the runoff, when uh, the electoral or, uh, institutions were counting the votes, there were protests in Lima with people from all the regions of the country in support of Pedro Castillo. And they were trying to protect the vote because all the lawyers hired by Fujimori and the right wing were trying to um, suppress the vote from people from the highlands. And they were very, very specific. They say that people in the highlands, they have vote and they have filled the, the ballots, uh, the boxes, uh, in, a very, uh, uh, in a very reckless way. So, and they don't know how to vote. So they were trying to suppress the vote of the poorest people in the country with the support, with the help of the wealthiest uh, law firms in the city. And that was very eloquent. And on the other side, we have protesters coming from the wealthiest neighborhoods of Lima, Miraflores, San Isidro, uh, San Borja, La Molina, uh, with, his, uh, with their uh, huge uh, cars. It was like a parade, like the motor show. Uh, and they went to the center of the city. Okay, <laughs> wow. The media only covered those manifestations who were pretty small. They, they gave full coverage to those uh, protesters uh, from the wealthiest neighborhoods. And we had hours and hours in uh, many TV channels with that side of the story. Like in the times of, the, of Fujimori's dictatorship, with the difference that now we didn't have a dictatorship. But the media acted like that. Uh, here, uh, the Familia Milo Quesada and El Grupo El Comercio, they are the owners of almost 80% of the printed press. And they have the support of all the 
business uh, uh, business associations uh, in the city. So that's a critical actor, and that also expressed this divide. People in rural towns and in the regions, they don't trust the media. They follow the media. They follow. They watch uh, all the main uh, mainstream TV channels and the radios. But they also have regional media, local radios, uh, and they are informed not only by that, but also by their own experience. So I think that they are far more well-informed than people in the city. Mm. How, how did it happen that there's this tremendous failure on the part of the so-called official left, we could say, concentrated in Lima, to organize and capture constituencies based in the Andean South. Uh, earlier, Jose Miguel, you even mentioned that the leader of Peru Libre has spoken about their affiliation, or at least their overlap with uh, Fujimoristas. So this is, yeah, it's just a very, it seems like it's a very messy kind of, um, situation where you have these the official left you were speaking about Peru Libre and uh, Peru Nuevo with uh, upper middle class progressives um, could you explain how that all works and what are they saying now we've spoken about Boluarte but what are other representatives of these political parties saying now you've already mentioned that there is silence and inactivity in Lima um, and what might they what might they say in the coming weeks? Um, will their hands be forced to to more vigorously participate in in these protests? Um, what's yeah? What's the state of play? Oh, uh, leaders and representatives of the centrist left they are expressing their views. Uh, they are calling for. Uh, they are calling Dina Boluarte to, to renounce. Uh, but uh, I just want to clarify that what I don't see now, is protests, in Lima. So they are manifestation artists. There are people who are making small demonstrations, and that's very important. Uh, I I think they are showing their sensibility. But it is nothing in comparison what I have seen before over the last 16 years. It's very different. And I, still, I am still wrestling with that question. Why? Why we are seeing all these uh, protests with people is risking their lives there in the highlands? And why we don't see nothing barely, barely similar here in Lima? Uh, nothing like that. Indeed, uh, the propaganda in the city is that these movements, uh, these manifestations in Puno, Cusco, are an attack against Lima. That was, uh, those are the words of the current prime minister, Alberto Otarola. He said that expressly uh, on Monday. Was on Monday? Yeah. Uh, no, on Sunday. He said that, that uh, we are not going to allow this attack against Lima. And when you see, for example, the covers and the headlines in the far right wing newspapers, they say, Juliaca, Aymara insurgents 
threats Lima. They are like uh, trying to create a new enemy, an abstract enemy, the Aymaras indigenous, they are the threat, the, those Bolivianos who are crossing the border. Um, it is like they were repeating the same message from some uh, Lima, Limanian intellectuals in the 19th century when they attacked a Bolivian leader, the leader of la, the Peruvian Confederation in the South, uh, Andres de Santa Cruz. They use the same kind of language, trying to portray him as a terrible enemy of the country. Um, so now, as I said, people is uh, giving their views. They are expressing their deep concern, but we don't see mobilization, at least not the same level of mobilization. Um, Maybe I'm not following what you ask totally. I think what he was, I mean, I can, I can kind of, I can follow up with that a little bit. I think, I mean, it's if, if what we're talking about is kind of this disconnect, not just mm -hmm. regions, but like within the left or within what we could call like, you know, mm, yeah. popular movements in the left uh, centered in the city. I mean, there, there is an elephant in the room, which we haven't really discussed, which is like really the precedent of, of, of like left-wing uh, terrorism and the internal war in, in, in Peru which um, has really, you know, been damaging for the left in general, has uh, created all kinds of, has been, so, so what, again, what, when uh, Jose Miguel is talking about this language that's now being used to kind of stigmatize the protests, primarily this language about terrorism, you no, know, and these attacks on Lima, he's, there's really, the resonant background is really um, the, the shining path and the internal, uh, conflict waged between the, the Peruvian state um, and, and the Shining Path, uh, the 80s and 90s, the 2000s, but, um, which really ha has created a general stigma uh, around the left. And, and one of the results of which has been this kind of, this kind of milquetoast centrist left that Jose Miguel is kind of <laughs> digging at. Um, and, uh, and so this term, you know, terrorist, it kind of, it kind of combines kind of like it's a racializing term but it's also like a political term and it's it's a uh and it's used to d discredit um the, these movements that are in uh you know outside of lima um and have legitimate grievances and sometimes because of their very political disenfranchisement have to take more radical um steps than than do uh you know th those who are more enfranchised and, you know they have to you know seize airports seize uh you know, seize highways, uh, stop the flow of, of mineral goods and, 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 and things like that. Um, and again, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's the, um, you know, you'd ask why, why doesn't the left in the cities, you know, why don't they go out to the, to the people? I and mean, the problem, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. The political power remains in, in Lima. So for those groups who are vying for power, you know, it, uh, Lima is overwhelmingly uh, the majority representation in Congress. It's the, you know, it's, that's where the, if one is interested in power, that's where one sets their their aim. Um, so um, I don't know if, if, if I answered. I mean, I think this, Jose Miguel, I'm sure you have a lot of things to add to that. But well, uh, well, I just wanted to add that, of course, that definitely this is there is this ghost of um, the internal war in the 1980s and 1990s, and. The word terrorist has been used over the last 30 years to frame everybody who with leftist beliefs in this country. 
the first time I went to Ecuador in the early 2000s, and I saw a manif uh, um, I saw a demonstration uh, by the Communist Party there with all the red flags in, in Quito. It was like, oh my God, this is a different world. Absolutely different from Peru in the 1990s uh, because that was unthinkable here uh, during Fujimori's rule. Uh, but then that legacy uh, continue being all pervasive in the country, um, particularly in the city, Lima. Uh, indeed, uh, those regions that were the most affected for the war and for the violence, Ayacucho, Apurima, Huancabelica, they are framed as terrorists and they do not believe in the propaganda that comes from Lima and they vote for the left for those who are accused of terrorism. Because despite they know, they actually know the crudest part of the story. Uh, and they have gone through all those uh, terrible years. And uh, here, uh, I think that I just, I am trying to, to explain uh, to myself, what, to myself what, is, what is going on here uh, within the left. And I see that one of the explanations is also a class divide and ideology, uh, ideological divide, but also a struggle for power. Of course, definitely. Power is, is at the center of all of this. Uh, for instance, uh, in the case of uh, Peru Libre, they have a very, an agenda very similar to that of the leftist parties in the 1970s. While Nuevo Peru, which is which is not a political party actually, because they didn't, uh, they haven't, they haven't constructed bases, you know, the uh, uh, base política they needed. They didn't, they didn't even uh, get uh, the signatures to be inscribed, to be uh, registered as a political party. So they need to make alliances constantly with people who they don't agree with. Uh, so they have a very different view about social issues like uh, gender, like race, even uh, um, very different priorities. And on the other side, uh, we can see this how uh, these class animosities play out in this story. Uh, how people from rural towns and also for poor neighborhoods they distrust uh, the centrist left in Lima's overall. Um, another factor here, and I think this is very important, is the way in which the so-called political parties are organized this, here in Peru. Because as you, as you described, Nicolas, uh, there is an owner of the party, someone who have the connections, the resources, and who register the party in the electoral system. And that person starts recruiting uh, guests, people who join the party just for elections and who put in money for the campaign. And also some allies in different parts, uh, uh, in different uh, parts where they can find a very, very loyal constituency. And every political party does the same here. Every political party does the same. So what happens when they uh, 
uh, get to power, then when they get elected, they mostly start to pay in political favors, like uh, naming uh, those allies in uh, positions that should be more competitive. And every political party does the same. And that doesn't guarantee any kind of uh, ideological loyalty or the ideological commitment, I mean. And political parties here in Peru have worked in that same way over decades. Some people says, no, this started with Fujimori. So just talk with some old militants of Acción Popular of the 1960s, and they will tell you the same story. The difference is that now we have regional powers that are competing with those old political powers in Lima. Mm. And Castillo upset this political order, but his time in the establishment was very brief. Uh, Jose Miguel, if I recall your precise capture of it, it was a year, four months, and nine days. I wanted to ask, in that year, four months, and nine days, was Castillo able to achieve anything at the policy level? was a too short a period of time and he faced enemies at every glance? Or is that besides the point? Are we to look at his time in office as having a much greater symbolic value, as you were saying earlier, Jose Miguel, in, in the sense that he's now politicized parts of the Peruvian population who were previously disenfranchised, marginalized, and overlooked. Um, and in the run-up to his presidency, there was much made of his social conservatism. This is something you also alluded to earlier, Jose Miguel, the fact uh, that he wasn't supportive of LGBTQI rights being the main controversy. How do we reconcile that with the popularity of his platform and what is the nature of social conservatism in Peru, because my sense of the conversation at the time is that there wasn't much, at least, uh, understanding about the way these issues manifest in this particular context. Well, I regret to say that, yes, their um, social conservatism is uh, widespread in the country. If there were a referendum against gay marriage here, uh, the no would win, win. If there were a referendum about the death penalty, uh, the option, the winning option would be yes, uh, for sure, in Lima and in, in the regions. And yes, uh, for example, this country was a country that in 1990 had 10% of evangelicals, now they are 25% and even more because this, uh, these numbers are like, I had I got these numbers like seven or eight years ago. And uh, these uh, uh, churches, evangelical churches have a lot of political power, a lot of wealth also. And they reach the poorest communities in, especially in urban, in urban settings. But they are also, they are not a monolith. Many of the people who are protesting in Cusco and Ayacucho, they belong to evangelical churches. And they are claiming for social change. 
or at least we can say that. Uh, in the way in which I am looking at this, um, this, is, this is not necessarily a revolt against neoliberalism, but against the way in which neoliberalism has just benefit the elite in the capital. When all the natural resources, most of the natural, natural resources are in the regions. Uh, many uh, activists uh, for ecologist uh, uh, activists and human rights activists and people who are working on, on issues of climate change and global, um, global warming, they can tell you, they work in the communities and they say that uh, rural communities are interested in mining as long as they can be in charge of the mines. They are also, some of them are also willing to sell their community lands uh, to big mines or big companies, but they want to be those who rule, who are in charge of the negotiation. They want to have that power. Other communities opposed mining and they have had a lot of problems and protests and indeed during uh, Umala's government, all the, the, the killings we had in, during those years were because of communities that were protesting against, against mining. And we have also illegal mining in, in places like Madre de Dios with people who come from all over the world and with human trafficking. And there are so many interests there. And in that situation, um, wh what we have here is a scenario in which uh, many different actors are very much less concerned about ideology itself. Uh, and they are rather more concerned about gaining more power. Of course, social change is embedded in all this story too. Because what people want is to be is to be able to decide. The attack in 2021 from these wealthy elites was against the rural vote. So they have tried elections. They won the election. In 2016, when Pedro Pablo Kuczynski, this wealthy banker, was elected against Fujimori, the vote of the South, of the rural communities, was critical for that. It, is, it was the first time in our history when Cusco and Puno voted the same than wealthy San Isidro in Lima <laughs> against Fujimori for a wealthy banker because the South voted against Lima and against centralization, against centralism. So they want to have a say. And they have tried all the all the legal ways, they have tried all the institutional uh, paths. And now, once again, uh, in this case, Congress ousted the president they, they elected. And even if they are disappointed with Castillo because he didn't achieve, uh, of course, also because of Congress, he didn't achieve any of the reforms he proposed. He didn't achieve uh, to carry out any any kind of, of policy uh, because uh, Congress didn't want him to succeed. Uh, they are disappointed of Castillo because he wasn't he was not strong enough. 
uh, he was also corrupt. They are also disappointed because of that. But uh, they say, hey, I voted for him. It was my vote. So now you are throwing away my vote, despite I won. And I went up to Lima to protest because uh, I wanted you to respect my vote. And now the, uh, their, their power and their political rights, once again, are being denied. I was just going to jump in. I think that there, there's, there's, I mean, I agree. I agree with everything that the Jose Miguel said. Um, I mean, there's, there's really not much to show for, uh, for Castillo's <clears throat> year, four months, nine days in office at, on, on a policy level, uh, in large part due to the, you know, an obstructionist Congress and, and also due to his own um, kind of, uh, you know, his inept, I don't want to, ineptitude or, or, or poor administration, um, his own, his own shortcomings. Um, uh, but I think, you know, kind of Jose Miguel was pulling back the lens a little bit to look at uh, Castillo as part of this really kind of ongoing rolling legitimacy crisis um, of which maybe Castillo's his, both his victory and his impeachment were kind of symptoms. Um, you know, I mean, we've, in, in Peru, I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Jose Miguel, but you've had six presidents in the last six years. No? Um, have you lost count at this point? <laughs> um, <laughs> they've all been impeached. They've all been found. They've all been accused of corruption. One of them committed suicide. Um, the, uh, well, actually, that's going back further. But um, in any case, uh, it's, uh, uh, it's, not a, it's not a very propitious terrain to be, to, to be governing uh, or building a... a any kind of project left or right. Um, and, uh, and, and, uh, and then this kind of was just like the, the maybe the last straw, last straw, uh, for, you know, the, 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 uh, the provinces or regions outside of Lima who, who thought that they maybe had finally had a, had a voice and, and how the country was going to be run and how they were going to be represented. Um, and then, and then to have that, uh, delegitimized um but i think you know even maybe even going further back the story could be told about how really since the, the the fall of fujimori i mean that's a name that we've been throwing around a lot here really since fujimori was um left office in 2000 no, is that right 2000 um the, the, there's really been the peru has been waiting for someone to take off some political formation to take office to 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 take take the reins of power because it's just been one kind of unpopular, illegitimate, impeached power after another. I don't know. I don't know if, if Jose Miguel agrees with that, that, that characterization, but that's my sense at least. Oh, well, yes, I agree. Um, I agree. I, I wanted to add something else uh, in relation to our previous, com previous comments, um, which is that, First, uh, we have to, to be, um, we have to accept, sadly, that there was a lot of ineptitude. That's true. But as I have seen in the international media, you know, Financial Times, New York Times, everybody highlighted the ineptitude of Castillo. Okay. Okay. They just highlighted that and they didn't look at Congress. Not at all. They didn't look at the fact that everybody here is aware, even people in Lima who is not engaged in protest, they are aware 
that the balance of power is lost, that the check and balances, uh, the independence of the political powers, uh, the political branches of the government do not exist. Uh, the Tribunal Constitutional, the Constitutional Court, uh, the, the appointees there were nominated and named by Congress. Uh, the judicial power is also full of people who is uh, affiliated with the right wing. And the only independent um, entity in the government, government now are the electoral institutions. They are the only ones who are now independent. And indeed, this Congress want to wants to change the people who is in charge of those institutions. So uh, the difference of power is overwhelming here. And people is aware of that. People, uh, not only in the Highlands, also here in Lima, the difference is that here uh, they are not protesting. Uh, on the other side, something that people can see, and they talk about this, is that there is a double standard. The government of Alan Garcia was hideously corrupt. We had the scandals of Odenbreck, uh, with Umala we had the same, and hey, these guys, they stole like millions of dollars, and now they are prosecuting Castillo. Okay, yes, uh, he also commit, committed acts of corruption, but what about the others, the, the big fishes? What about them? So people see that double standard. People see how the national media, uh, the mainstream media in the capital, they scrutinized all his ministers and they didn't do the same with all the ones who were in charge before. And they are not doing that with the current cabinet. Um, something uh, um, that I wanted to, to to add finally about what you said is that, uh, yes, we have had six presidents. Um, and in this political environment, uh, I have been hearing since long ago that maybe uh, Peruvians want, want an authoritarian government, someone who is going to be in charge of changing the rules. I have been always afraid of that possibility at some point. Uh, I can tell you that in 2011, people in many uh, of the, the neighborhoods that are in the outskirts of the city, in my neighborhood, in other parts of the city, they voted for Umala, not because he was a leftist. They were very clear when they told me the, what, about their decision. They voted for him because he was going to fight crime, because he was a strong man, he was a military officer, he was going to change everything to make this country safer. And also because uh, he was going to be able to make, uh, to carry out, a, um, to implement a strong government, because he was an ex-army officer. And then that same very people in 2016 told me they, they were going to vote for Keiko because she was going to have the advice of his father, who was a strong man, who was in charge of keeping this country safe and defeated terrorists, um, because he was authoritarian. And in some protests long ago, 
also in 2011, it was in Puno, in camera. I remember a man saying, uh, what? Um, oh, this is not about democracy or nothing like that. This, uh, this is about nationalism. We have to take Lima. We have to go against those elites who are ruling this country. And that produced a lot of exasperation, yes. Uh, this centralization of the power and the denial of the voices of the people in the regions. So the political options are not, not necessarily democratic and are not necessarily affiliated with, um, with the leftist ideology per se. There are more, uh, more at stake here. There is more, more at stake here. To ask a question about that, and maybe as a, as a closing question, what happens now? Because as you were saying, Nicholas, uh, Alberto Fujimori's name has been in the background. And of course, he's Peru's infamous dictator. But even the label of dictator authoritarian is sometimes contested because, as you were saying, Jose Miguel, there's a lot of characterization of Peruvians as yearning for the return of that style of strongman leadership because whatever the case might be as far as economic and social policy is concerned, at least that kind of strong hand brings a level of stability to Peruvian life. Um, and that desire for stability and order permeates across class, region, race, so on and so forth. Um, is that the case? Is because as you were saying, Nicholas, this all seems to be part of a long arc of rolling legitimacy crisis. Um, might the trajectory of what is happening now default back to that? Or have we kind of reached a turning point where Castillo's election, the encouragement and sense of agency that would have given, I think, to large swaths of the population disenfranchised in the South, um, and even the surruption of protest and the fact that it's persisted for um, more than a month despite tremendous repression from military and security forces. Uh, could we see maybe, is this the beginning of an opening out of this legitimacy crisis where long-standing demands for the decentralization of power and the democratization of the Peruvian state uh, gain momentum, um, or might we see the emergence of a strengthened right-wing agenda that is being led by Alberto Fujimori's um, eldest daughter, um, who leads the right-wing alliance in in the Congress? Where, where might this all go? Can I jump in? I, um, in this case, okay. While Keiko Fujimori and the Fujimorists were prominent during the last election, now during this last year, uh, there are new figures in the right wing. New figures, figures that seem to be even more dangerous than them. Um, uh, very linked to the military. We have some people who are uh, former admirants of the Navy. Uh, Jorge Montoya and Cueto in Congress with a very conservative party, a deeply conservative party. His, his leader, no, its leader is actually the current mayor of Lima. He was elected mayor and just uh, in October, 
He's been he's been compared to Bolsonaro. I've seen in a lot of. Oh press. yes, 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 um, yes. You have to hear his speeches. Um, it is um, it is very very shocking. And well, by the way, uh, despite all the incompetence of this this man, because he shows his ignorance and the way his incapacity to make an argument, even in a debate, in a political debate. But even though the most educated elites of this city voted for him, and those same elites frame Castillo as an ignorant and also with, uh, compare, they compare him with uh, an animal, uh, but they don't do that with uh, representatives of the right wing that show the same level of intellectual competencies. No, uh, uh, they are very selective when they want to insult something, someone. Um, well, uh, I think as I am trying to, I am wrestling with so many ideas about my country here. I think that even when there are some feelings or calls for authoritarianism, they are actually at the bottom calls for democratic reforms. Because what people want, what people want is to have a say in this story. For example, there have been calls for uh, independence, uh, the secession of the South. Um, sometimes I feel sympathetic about that <laughs> because uh, because all this uh, discrimination and exclusion. But uh, we have to be uh, to be alerted because. People who was spreading those calls for independence, they were people who uh, participated in the Fujimorist party in the past. They are linked with a, they are linked, they have links with a right wing, with a current right wing. And they were spreading those, um, those ideas in the South. And all of a sudden now the government is accusing foreign uh, agents of promoting the secession of the country or things like that. But if you look at the protesters, they are protesting always with Peruvian flags and they claim to be Peruvians. And they want to be recognized as Peruvians with political rights. If you look at um, those wealthy people in, in Lima, in these wealthy, wealthy neighborhoods, they also claim to be Peruvians, but they have a very different idea of the country. I, I think that what it, what, it, what it is at stake here is the, the idea of Peru, the idea of the nation, and how people understand the nation, and how some of them try to impose a notion of the nation that implies the subordination of those who are portrayed as the others. Uh, some, some friends or some colleagues, they say that, well, we have to recognize that we don't have anything in common in this country, anything in common with each other, that, that's not true. I think that the problem is exactly that from the power, uh, those in power have a long history of denial about all the things that we have in common because they want to deny equality. Hmm. I agree. I mean, I, I think I, I agree with, with most of what Jose Miguel said. I mean, I, I don't, I don't, also, I'm not, I'm not as close to the 
to uh, to the to the events as, as he is, but um, I I I guess I I I look at the demands that are coming um, from outside Lima, and 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 I and I and as as Jose Miguel said, they're they're mostly demands for more rights, more democracy, more you know democratization of of society. Um, and you you start to look for where those could be channeled, what like uh, institutional channels could receive those demands, and you don't find them. And you start to wonder, well, maybe that's where these kinds of you know kind of to follow on Jose Miguel's point, where rights for democratization demands could actually turn into uh, you know authoritarian results or or, or deviations. Um, you know, and, and I think you know that we we spoke earlier about uh, Rafael uh, Lopez. Yeah, the Lima uh, mayor who's been compared to Bolsonaro and is completely off the charts in terms of just, you know, it's far right. Politics, I mean, I don't know, you know, it's the, these these figures are never predicted to, to come to power. That, but, but one could imagine a scenario where a figure like that could come to power um, as they did, you know, as Bolsonaro did in Brazil, where this demand for rights for me, for my, for my well-being... Um, you know, becomes, uh, uh, you know, conceived in terms of privileges. Like, I, you know, I, I, not rights for everyone, but rights for those of us who, who feel grievances or who feel, you know, that's the kind of uh, negative solidarity that could become uh, widespread. So, again, I, I, if, we're think, if we're thinking about an authoritarian resolution to this crisis as a military resolution, I don't know if, if, I, I, don't know if I see that. I don't know if Jose Miguel sees that. But there could be something uh, authoritarian-like along the lines of Bolsonaro. I mean, again, these are things that one doesn't really predict. But um, I don't. I, I'm looking at Jose Miguel's face. I, I don't I, know. I, I, the military for me is really the, the the mystery in all of this because it is it has a precedent of. I mean, they've had military governments, dictatorships, and from from the left and the right. Um, I am very afraid that in the next election, the winner can be either uh, a candidate in one of the political extremes of the spectrum. And in the extremes, at the end, those extremes are very, very similar to each other. Um, because with a populist discourse, you can change your political face at any time and claim to be the defender of the people, as Dina Boluarte did. She was very populist, and my feeling when she was a candidate was, oh my God, she can say the same exactly from the opposite side. <laughs> she can use the same rhetoric. Uh, he can, she can give the same message, and she's doing that now. Uh, on the other side, again, uh, we have these uh, human rights groups, uh, uh, I, I think they are sincere, but for me, this, this is striking that this anti-Fujimorist movement that was so prominent in the last 20 years and so far, this government is doing what a Fujimorist government had done if they had won the elections in 2021. So they are materializing what a new dictatorship uh, uh, has done in this country. And even though 
we don't see those protests in the city. They are doing what everybody was afraid of. And we don't see that, that reaction, that reaction. And that for me is very concerning. Um, uh, I, there is something that uh, is traveling also. While in the 1980s, we had this guerrilla group, this militarized uh, political party, Sendero Luminoso, the Shining Path. And they acted through attacks um, against institutions, against buildings and towns. They carried out massacres in rural towns when they faced some just a slight opposition. But here, what we see is the population. It's not a political party. They are not a militarized group. It is the people going to the streets, protesting massively. Uh, how can you repress all of that constantly? How can a government can destroy that resistance? I don't see that. Uh, um, finally, here, uh, the, the, one of the problems here is that if we look back in history, most of the governments that somehow understood uh, the demands of the people were authoritarian governments. In the 1920s, Leguía understood that there, there was a political crisis going on. He was a dictator. He was, was someone who wanted to carry out reforms from the top, and he did it partially. Uh, but he tried to, he appropriated the discourse that was coming from the basis, from the grassroots. He made that discourse his discourse. Velasco in the 1960s did the same. They saw, hey, this country is about to, uh, to go to fall. We are going to the precipice. So we are going to carry out the reforms, not a revolution. We are going to do, it, to do this from the top. And he appropriated the popular demands. I don't know if the military now would do something similar. I don't know, because they still have this legacy of Fujimorism, this legacy of uh, right-wing politics coming from the 1980s in the war against Sendero. I'm not sure. And that's also a concern for me. Uh, but every time in this country, we have had this kind of repression um, with no justice for those who have lost their families and their, uh, their people in these protests, in the killings, I wonder what is going to happen in the following five or 10 years. If maybe a new, uh, a new armed group or a new guerrilla could appear in the country because some young people can believe, hey, we try everything. We try elections. We were political orga politically organized. We follow the rules. We did everything. We protest. And now what? We have no justice, we have no equalities, and we have no access to the same rights and power than those wealthy elites that want to rule on their own by themselves. Mm. 
Nicholas, would you like to have the final word? Uh, not particularly. No, but that's why. Um, no, I, I, I just maybe it's not a it's not a fitting final word. But like I, I think the um, in terms of possible scenarios, another one I think that we haven't really an aspect that we haven't really discussed is the economic scenario right now, which has become very bad uh, in Peru. And as there's, you know, this is coming after several decades, I mean, more than a decade of, of what's been called the um, Peruvian, you know, economic miracle, you know, driven mostly, by, as Jose Miguel was talking about before, by extract extraction of um, minerals and, and, and natural gas and that kind of thing. Um, but again, you know, the, 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 when we look at what the political outcome from this might be, one fears that, you know, there could be powerful, you know, some fractions of the capitalist class that could be looking at this, you know, this mess <laughs> and trying to find a, a you know, a, a non-democratic solution to preserve their interests. You know, those are, I, it's, again, it's, it's hard to look at what's happening in the midst of all this political chaos and see beyond maybe some smaller, uh, you know, kind of uh, like lumpen capitalist embedded in, in, in Congress, who, who, who are the capitalist interests that are, are benefiting from all this so it's it's another fear sorry you're probably looking to close on a, a more positive note i think i think all of the different trajectories that you've both outlined are equally possible i mean mm -hmm. i and we all hope for as jose miguel was saying that just the rising tide of ferment and disgruntlement produces an irrepressible wave of mobilization and that that mobilization is is able to democratize Peruvian society. The, the, the big question, of course, though, as Nicholas, you were saying, is what are the institutional channels to funnel all of that energy through? Um, and if it can't be funneled through institutional channels that lead to a further democratizing effect, then the danger and fear is that it defaults on an authoritarian resolution, but we, we touch wood and, and hope and pray that that is not the case and we'll keep a close watch um, and solidarity to everyone in Peru uh, protesting, uh, solidarity to you, Jose Miguel. I know you're, you're there in the thick of it. Um, and thank you both so much for coming onto the program. I found this extremely insightful and just a sweeping primer on not only what is happening now but all of its origins so i'm very grateful to both of you thank you thank you very much william a reminder to our listeners i've been chatting to nicholas allen who's a graduate student at american history and the commissioning editor of jacobin latin america as well as jose miguel munido vargas who is a peruvian phd student at stony brook university specializing in andean history race gender nationalism as well as popular conservatism in Latin America and the U.S. A reminder that new episodes of the podcast come out every week. We'll try for every week this year. That's at least one resolution that I have. And thank you to our listeners for listening. Please do subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Follow Africa as a Country on all social media platforms. But most importantly, head over to africasacountry.com to check out new writing on African politics and culture, as well as writing on politics and culture on the globe, but from an African perspective. My name is William Shockey. Thank you for listening and see you next time. Mm -hmm.